I encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me in in your Bible to the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to John. The 10th chapter of John's Gospel. In this series that we're addressing as I have opportunity of the seven I am predicated utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, we come this evening to the third of these. We're in verses 7 and 9 of John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will, shall, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they have it might have it more abundantly. And so our Lord Jesus holds himself out in this passage as the door of access, the gate of entrance into the sheepfold of God. Where therein is to be found, as our Lord tells us, everlasting security, but more than everlasting security, but eternal fullness of life. So let us hear the word of God, John chapter 10, the verse 10 verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the ministry of this his holy and infallible word. Let us pray. Our Father, we bow in your presence tonight, conscious, O oh Lord, that unless you're pleased to send your own spirit, that he would come and be our teacher 
in this hour, then this one would speak, but in vain. And these your dear people would hear, but in vain. And so we cry out to you, O oh God, as humbly as we know how, that you would come by your very own spirit and be our teacher in this hour. Take the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and press them home to our hearts with both clarity and power to the end that we may become conformed, more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we would ask that if there is anyone here tonight who is a stranger to Christ, O oh Lord, open their ears and open their hearts to hear as those who would hear for eternity. We ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ says in this passage here that he is the door of the sheep. Now I suppose it's true to make the point that our Lord's original audience would have had at least two distinct advantages over us as those who are listening to him. In the first place, they lived, for the most part, in a rural environment, while most of us, if not all of us, are pretty much city folk. They would have immediately understood the rural references and nuances of language, as well as the images and pictures to which our Lord alludes throughout this extended metaphor in John chapter 10. And they would and could immediately identify with all of the rural imagery of his language on this occasion. And then the second advantage I think they would have had over us is that they were Jews. And on that account, they would surely have been familiar with the teaching of the Old Covenant Scriptures, where again and again, repeatedly, God likened himself as a shepherd in relation to his people as sheep. And you see this perhaps most memorably in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's compelling, I think, that when you look at these many references to God as shepherd and to his people as sheep, you see that these references are made repeatedly over and over again that through his prophets, God is warning his people against false shepherds, men who were in it for what they could get out of it and not for the sheep men who had no true concern for the sheep of God but rather who used and abused the flock of God for their own ends and purposes and you see that very strikingly for example in the 34th chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel Listen to how he expresses it there. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against those shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, that is to these appointed rulers and overseers, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds. 
of Israel who feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back that which was driven away nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them, and so on. And clearly those words are a scathing indictment against the anointed, uh, 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 ordained, appointed leaders and shepherds of the people of God. And it is against the backdrop of that searing indictment that God promises, verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, to undertake and fulfill the role of shepherding himself. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered. And here the Lord himself, the covenant God of Israel, is declaring his intention to come in person and to gather and deliver his scattered sheep. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen that which was sick. He promises himself to be the true shepherd of the people of God. And then listen carefully to what he says in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my shepherd David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel at that time is prophesying some 400 years after the death of King David. And he's speaking here to be sure of great David's greater son, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, who in the fullness of time would come as the anointed shepherd of the people of God, and he will feed them. And therefore we see here in the 10th chapter of John's gospel, the partial, at least the partial fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. And surely what we read in Ezekiel 34 and John chapter 10 resonates with us today because sadly the church of the living God has always been tormented diabolically by false shepherds. Men who had the title of shepherds but had the heart of devils. They had the name of pastor, bishop, presbyter. But in the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, they were but wolves in sheep's clothing. 
And so these words of our Lord would immediately have struck a chord with his original audience on this occasion. So bear with me now. We're going to begin to look and consider these words of our Lord Jesus Christ in general terms if you're following the outline in the bulletin. And you'll notice that in the first ten verses, Jesus is warning his hearers to be on their guard against those whom he portrays as thieves and robbers and strangers. Now, there has been a great deal of debate among the commentators as to whom our Lord is alluding under these descriptions. Who were the strangers, the thieves, the robbers? But notwithstanding that debate among the commentators, I think it is clear that our Lord is speaking of men who had publicly been set apart by the church of God to be under shepherds to the flock of God. but who in reality were strangers to God's people and were thieves and robbers and, as I said before, were in it for what they could get out of it. They were deceitful men, men who had the name of pastor, pastor but not the heart of a pastor. And our Lord surely was speaking of the clergy in his own day, the established appointed ministers of God, for that's what they were. You'll remember how our Lord in the 23rd chapter of Matthew's gospel speaks so scathingly to the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus declares this, To his disciples and the crowds, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that, our Lord says, observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. They had all the outward symbols and vestiges of ecclesiastical certification. They had all the, the things that go, go with the name of being a shepherd, but they did not have the true nature of a shepherd. And here in the 10th t- chapter of John, and the first few verses in particular, can be somewhat confusing Initially, if you have the tendency to look at these verses as some kind of extended allegory. Now, I do not view verses 1 through 10 or even those thereafter as an allegory. To be sure, there are a number of excellent commentators who attempt to blend the various elements of this passage from their perspective, to give what they think is a more coherent or a more cohesive whole. But it seems to me, rather than being an allegory as such, what we have here is an extended metaphor which our Lord is giving. He is the good shepherd, and we're going to look at that, Lord willing, next time. But he is also the door. 
And so what we have here is a mixed metaphor, the sort of which we ourselves are accustomed to use. So we shouldn't be so meticulous, and we're not often in our own conversations, one with another, we're not so meticulous as to ensure that our own pictorial language and images and metaphors and similes are absolutely consistent. But we understand one another, and we know that our own mixed metaphors are often intentional. And at other times, our mixed metaphors are inadvertent. But what we have here is a mixed metaphor. Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep, but he is also the door of the sheep. And in a sense, there is coherence. And that coherence consists in the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. And that's what gives cohesiveness to this passage. Christ is all in all. But in this passage, there is clearly one thing that our Lord is determined to stress to his hearers. I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me, he says are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Now here is what I think is the keynote in this passage. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will be saved. And perhaps, perhaps you're asking, <clears throat> well, David, what does it mean? What what do those words mean? What does it mean to be saved? Well, when we read the Bible, which is essentially a manual or a guide to salvation, you see, if we want to understand the Bible, then you need to understand this. It's about salvation. It's God's revelation of himself as to how man can be saved, not only from the prospect of hell, but to be brought into the kingdom of his, of his love in his own dear son. So the Bible is essentially and fundamentally a written manual or guide regarding salvation. <clears throat> and salvation in the Bible has basically two facets to it. There are more, but it has basically two facets. Jesus has come to save us from the coming wrath of God. That is, there's going to be a coming day of reckoning, of judgment, when God will judge the world in righteousness by his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is just, and he will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, verse 7, there will be a day of righteous reckoning. You can count on it. And Jesus Christ has come out of love to the Father to rescue us from the coming wrath. But that is the negative facet of salvation. There's also a positive facet of salvation. And it's really the positive facet or aspect of salvation that the Bible emphasizes even more for we're saved not only from the coming wrath in Jesus Christ 
but we're saved in Jesus Christ for the glorious presence of God. Salvation in the Bible is ultimately, gloriously positive. The New Testament speaks more vastly about that aspect of salvation to us, about what God has prepared for those who love him, than what he has prepared for those who do not love him and refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you enter by me, says Jesus, you will be saved. You will be saved from the coming wrath. And there is a day of coming wrath. Be sure of it. The character of God requires it. And the word of God declares it. But we will be saved for the fellowship of God. Communion with God for his kingdom and his family, saved for the prospect of being forever with the Lord. Now, once again, do you notice here that we're being brought face to face in this passage with a very solemn presupposition that is embedded actually in all of the I am utterances of Jesus in the gospel of John. There is an embedded, solemn presupposition. And it is simply this, that all of us need saving. All of us need saving. In different ways, this reality lies at the heart of all of these I am utterances of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so on. There is couched in all of these I am utterances, the presupposition that Jesus has come because all of us need saving. We need to be rescued from our sin and from death. And this is our condition before God. We need God in his grace, in his kindness, and in his covenant mercy to come and do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves, to rescue us and to redeem us. So when Jesus says, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, I think his point is clear. He is not saying that there was never any God-honoring, sheep-carrying shepherds under the old covenant. He wasn't by any means denying that, but he is speaking here generally rather than universally. But it is nonetheless a striking indictment, is it not? All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. <clears throat> so it is a general statement, but what a general statement. For the Lord Jesus to make of the leaders in his day. <clears throat> you see one of the great. <clears throat> one of the great and I think saddest realities is what we see today. Being marketed at various churches as genuine Christianity. 
Virtually everywhere we turn, this, that, and the other is being repackaged and then remarketed as genuine Christianity. Some other way of access to God rather than the true door. He who is both shepherd and door directs his sheep to himself and no other. And when substitutes and counterfeits are suggested, and listen to this, when distracting controversies are proposed in such a way that if the church appears to ignore them or is indifferent to them, then the church can be perceived as being unkind and unloving. You can sure be sure that whenever that charge comes, lurking behind the scenes are thieves and robbers. Anytime Christ and the interest of his kingdom are sidelined and controversy begins to occupy center stage, then you can be sure that the indictment with which Christ gave the Ephesian church in the second chapter of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, you look at that congregation. They had proven themselves to be steadfast and all of their works labor in patience. And the Lord Jesus commends that. Their orthodoxy, he says, in the face of of false apostles had exposed those false apostles as liars. And their untying perseverance, Jesus says, was above reproach. But what was the problem with the Ephesian church? Christ no longer occupied center stage. Why? Because they had left, they had abandoned their first love. And unless grave care is taken in the midst of controversy, we too can fall prey to the exact same indictment. Thieves and robbers rejoice when Christ is driven out of the limelight and something else has displaced him. We fear so much the charge of being perceived as unloving. Well, they made the same accusation against the Lord Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was dining in a home in Bethany? You read about this in the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. And Mary takes a pound of expensive aromatic spikenard and with it she anoints the feet of Jesus and then she wipes his feet with her hair. And of course Judas Iscariot is sitting there and he's the one who held the purse, you'll recall. And he can't help himself. And so he pipes up and he says, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? What's the implication in those words? That Jesus doesn't care about the poor. That's the underlying implication, is it not? You see, this was a voice of a thief. As the passage tells us in verse 6 of John chapter 12. Christ must remain our first love in the midst of everything that we do. We abandon Christ and his gospel 
when we abandon the foundational presupposition that brought the Son of God into the world that people are lost and on their way to hell and they need a Savior to rescue them. Now it's possible that Jesus explains what he means by saved in verse 9. And there is a parallelism you'll notice in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And some say to go in and out is a Hebraic parallelism that explicates what it means to be saved. That is, to be saved means to go in and out and find pasture. Now, I do believe that it's a Hebraism, but I don't find that argument to be persuasive. It's underscoring, I think, if we follow the metaphor carefully through, saved means sheltered from harm, protected from every evil influence to go in and out and find pasture means life in all of its abundance. As I've said, not only does the gospel promise and give me an everlasting shelter, but it promises you the fullness of life for which your heart cries and groans. And that fullness of life is what? It is friendship with God. It is union and communion with Jesus Christ to know that God counts you as his friend. For later in this gospel, Jesus will say to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. Now that has to be one of the most remarkable statements in all of the Bible. Now, having looked at these words generally and considered them in general terms, I ask you, if you would, to bear with me as we look at them more concretely by asking and seeking to answer three questions. I don't know why this is listed as D, E, and F. Well, I think it's, a, it's a, something that has to do with Microsoft Word, but it should be A, B, and C. But the first question is this. How is Jesus the door or the gate to the sheepfold? I am the door or the gate. Now the Greek word is thura. It, it can be translated either way. It simply depends on the context. And perhaps here the word gate is the more appropriate translation. But I would not be dogmatic about that. How is Jesus the door or the gate of the sheep? Our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll recall, came into the world not to proclaim a new ethic, a new covenant ethic as identical to the old covenant ethic, not to teach a new philosophy, but he came into the world to become a new and living way back to God. Do you recall the closing verses of Genesis chapter 3? 
And the scene there is very dramatic. Adam has sinned and Eve has sinned. And together they have brought down the cosmos upon them in their sin. And God comes down and you'll recall that he pronounces the various judgments. And yet in the midst of those various judgments, he makes this glorious gospel promise that from the seed of the woman would come the one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent and then God said this and now lest he man put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That was the awesome reality. God was now guarding the way to the tree of life with a flaming sword. How then was fallen humanity to enter into life and not be struck down by the flaming sword. It's because God found a way in his own son, incarnate in our flesh, to send him to bear in his own body on the tree the awful piercing of that flaming sword, as it were. And as the execution of that flaming sword was exhausted upon the person of the Son of God, a way back to God was opened in the bloodletting death of our Savior. In Jesus, never outside of Jesus, there is opened up a way back to God. The sword of God's righteous wrath fell on his sinless son. And that is how he is the door or the gate of the sheep. He is the way into the life of the people of God because he himself bore the strokes of the righteous judgment of God upon the tree, which was ours to bear. But then secondly, what does Jesus mean when he says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. How, how is it that we enter by Jesus into the security and the life of God's sheepfold? Well, the first thing we need to be absolutely clear about is that we do not enter into the safety and security of God's sheep by our own efforts. You'll never make it on your own. At the very opening of the chapter, Jesus says, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up another way is what? Is a thief and the robber. There is only one legitimate way into the fold of God's sheep. All metaphors aside at this point, Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, the metaphors are gone. 
It's through Jesus. We possess no merit of our own that would bring us righteously into the security of God's sheepfold. We need God himself to bring us in. We need someone perfect enough to bring us in. And Jesus Christ alone is the only Savior perfectly suited to the needs of sinners. By his perfect righteousness and by his sin-bearing, blood-letting, life-giving death, when we enter by him, when we place all our hope and trust in him alone, the virtue and the efficacy of that blood atonement becomes ours and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. This is why the Bible insists absolutely that our great and most urgent need is to get into Jesus Christ. To get out of ourselves and into Jesus Christ. And the only thing that gets you in to Jesus Christ in the event you're wondering, it isn't by attending a church like Christ uh, Church either once or twice on Sunday, every Sunday, that won't get you into Jesus Christ. Looking at John Calvin as your favorite theologian will not get you into Jesus Christ. Liking any great man or any great woman of God will not get you into Jesus Christ. But self-renouncing, self-abandoning trust in Jesus Christ puts you into Jesus Christ. I think probably one of the most wonderful expressions of saving faith I've ever come across are those words of Horatius Bonar in one of his hymns. I don't even think it's in our hymnal, but he's, he has these words, Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's faith. We enter through Jesus Christ when we abandon ourselves and embrace Him as our Lord and Savior. Not my learning, not my education, not any of my gifts, not my abilities, not my parents, nothing of my own, nothing, not my praying, not my preaching, not my witnessing, nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Clinging to Christ alone is how we enter into the sheepfold of God. And then thirdly, what does Jesus mean when he says, those will go in and out and find pasture. Well, again, some commentators, <laughs> and it's interesting when you study this passage and read the commentators, and uh, we don't need to be slaves, not even to good commentators, but some commentators, good commentators suggest uh, that it's one thing to go in and that it's another to go out. But to make that point, I think, is simply to miss the point. <laughs> to go in and out is a Hebraism. It is indeed a Semitic expression. It simply means throughout the whole course 
of one's life. Whatever you happen to be doing in the totality of your experience, you're going to find pasture. I have come, Jesus said, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus is underscoring the truth that salvation in him is rich and abundant in life. That to be right with God does not simply mean to be rightly related to God, but that having been put right with him, I am possession of the very life of God by virtue of my union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Abundant life as well is not life that never knows turmoil, that never knows tragedy or disappointment or difficulty or heartbreak and heartache. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, experience surely will have taught you that. But abundant life is life lived in fellowship with the abundant one. That's what abundant life is, to be in union with the one who is abundant in all that he is. And sometimes I wonder if, if some of our younger folk are under the impression that Jesus Christ has come to rob you of anything, of any worth. I think it's one of the great delusions of the devil that if you come to Christ, your, your life is going to be the less for it. And I think the very opposite, the very opposite of that is the truth. Jesus Christ doesn't come to rob anyone of anything that's worth a hill of beans. Nothing. He comes only to give life. And to give life in all of its fullness. For abundant life is not life that is laden with things. But it is a life that possesses the abundant one. The Lord Jesus Christ. I am the door. Jesus said. If anyone enters by me. He will be saved. The question is, with which I close, is this. Have you entered by Christ? Have you come to God through Christ? Have you been saved from the coming wrath and saved for the glorious presence of God? That's what Jesus came to do. To be a new and living way back to God through whom in whom and by whom we enter into life. If you're not saved, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never turn that one away. Whoever comes to me, I'll never turn away. Let us pray.